this patrol was ambushed by 40 men, probably from Sudan, heavily armed and on horseback. Eight rangers have been killed in the last year. My Mai militiamen attacked the Virunga National Park in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo on Sunday morning. On patrol as part of his work to conserve elephant herds, it's believed he saw ivory being piled up on rocks and a group of poachers who opened fire. One bullet went through the helicopter and struck him. They make about 20 pounds a kilogram. By the time it reaches the market in Asia, it goes for at least 750. This is worth a small fortune. Those who are killing, that is a minor people. You can't compare with the, the one who are financing as intelligence unit. The main route for us is a person financing poaching. Welcome to the Faces of Assassination podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm Ana Paula Oliveira. Throughout this series of podcasts, we'll be hearing stories of those who fought back against organized crime and speaking to those who are organizing the fight back today. In this episode, we'll be hearing about how the illegal wildlife trade, which is worth billions of dollars annually, is driven by demands in Asia and serviced by well-organized transnational criminal networks. But we'll also be hearing about the dangers threats and sometimes murders that conservationists and environmental defenders suffer at the hands of the same criminal networks. For this discussion, we have the director of the Environmental Investigation Agency, Mary Rice. Mary has been at the EIA for over two decades and has led the organization since 2008. I began by asking her to tell us what the main reasons are for the illicit exploitation of wildlife. Obviously, I think it's now almost universally recognized that the illegal trade in wildlife um, and, and also timber ranks in the top four transnational organized crime groups. So along with drugs, firearms and human trafficking. And I think the reason why it is such a lucrative business is because for the individuals and the organizations involved, the criminal organizations, they, they, they have a very low risk with very high profits. And they also target and exploit areas where there is weak governance and, and weak rule of law. Many of the wildlife products that are in illegal trade come from regions, for example, in Africa, where there is very, you know, there is instability, um, there is weak governance, um, and of course, there's massive corruption. Um, and that applies also to the consumer end, where much of this product goes. Um, you know, the groups involved are international, they're very adaptable, they're well resourced, and the, the likelihood is that they're involved in other organized crimes as well. But certainly, they can make huge profits from the illegal wildlife trade. And you mentioned previously Nigeria, that Nigeria has evolved into a transit hub for wildlife trafficking, primarily for elephant, ivory and pangolin scales over the last years. Why and how a country become a transit hub? So I think based on, based on our experience, you know, we started looking at Nigeria back in 2014 just to put it into context, between 2015 and 2019, Nigeria was implicated in 
more than 30 tons of ivory seizures and 167 tons of pangolin scales, which ranks it, you know, very high in, in the sort of exit point for illegal wildlife. And it's also an exit point for illegal timber as well. The reason why suddenly it became, as far as from certainly from, from the work that we've done, is that we were tracking a criminal network that had moved from Tanzania into Mozambique. And we, we were tracking this particular group who were then eventually caught, prosecuted and convicted by the Chinese authorities. But essentially what they said was that they'd moved from Tanzania because enforcement had become more efficient in Tanzania. So there was a greater risk. They moved to Mozambique, but then they moved from Mozambique to Nigeria because they couldn't source the volume of products and the standard of products they wanted from Mozambique anymore. Effectively, they'd cleaned out Mozambique of all its, you know, good ivory. And so they moved to Nigeria. And then, you know, they set up operations in Nigeria. And now we we see all this stuff coming out of Nigeria. And just last week, there was another big seizure in Nigeria itself this time, which is probably the biggest seizure they've ever made internally. A lot of the seizures have been made externally. And of course, Nigeria is probably recognized as being a very difficult country to operate in because of corruption. They have insurgency and there, there are clear challenges there to any kind of enforcement. So the, the criminal gangs go in there and they exploit all this and it makes it very easy for them to operate. And obviously, the people that are in the front line who are defending these endangered species suffer a great risk of being targeted by criminal groups and even murdered. An example of this is the murder of South African conservationist Wayne Lotter in Tanzania. How do you think the assassination of Wayne Lotter has impacted the work of wildlife conservationists in the region? So I think, I mean, it was, it was a terrible shock, I think. But Wayne was not alone in being targeted as a conservationist and being killed for, for his work. You know, there are many instances worldwide of environmental conservationists and activists who have been killed, as well as what we would call, you know, government rangers who are protecting their parks and, and their wildlife on the ground and being killed, you know, all the time. Um, Virunga, back in April last year, 20 rangers lost their lives. And then again in January this year, another six were killed. In terms of how it impacts the way you operate, obviously it means that you have to start thinking about introducing much more stringent security and risk profiling. Wayne was, you know, he was, he was an extremely passionate and driven individual and you know setting up the pams foundation with his partner chrissy clark who who still runs the foundation and they continue to do amazing work they were adopting a, an intelligence-led approach to the poaching of of wildlife specifically ivory that was taking place in tanzania and they were getting results and they were uncovering individuals and 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 mapping out the network of individuals involved in the poaching and the trade that was taking place. And 
there were clearly very high level individuals involved in that network, individuals who were very well politically placed, who have, you know, financially well placed and protected. And so his murder was a clear targeting. And the belief is that it was because he'd he'd got very close to the person at the top of the tree. And this was a commissioned murder. He, He will have been dead this August for four years. And the the case to try and track down the killer or the killers has been ongoing since the death and supported by the president and as far as i'm aware and i think we we know that there are now 22 individuals in custody who will be facing trial and i believe the trials are due to start perhaps next week although It's anticipated that the first hearing will be adjourned and pushed down the road a ways. But I I suppose this demonstrates the commitment of of the authorities in Tanzania to address that that act, that criminal act. Um, But it has taken them a very long time and there have been many obstacles thrown at them and people have tried to derail the process but it will be, um, you know, it will be a sort of groundbreaking case as and when these individuals come to court. But of course, everybody involved in that has had to take additional security measures. And I think for people, you know, for, for small NGOs working on site in very difficult conditions, they don't always have the resources to, to get additional security support. And they don't always know or have the capacity to understand what's required you know at EIA we've been operating for nearly four decades and we review our security on a regular basis and as wildlife crime has become more lucrative you know we've had to ramp up our security to ensure not only the safety of our own staff but the safety of any partners that we work with and to ensure that they're not compromised or exposed to some of these criminals. And you've made some really important points there. In the Global Initiatives Assassination Witness Campaign, we have seen the importance of creating a network of protection on the people on the ground to prevent these attacks, but also around the witness, the need to stand before courts so that in the end, the prosecution can be successful. So we need definitely some strategy to better provide responses in these areas. That being said, in your experience, what are the main strategies that reduce the risk for those operating at the local level? So I guess it depends on the, on the particular country in question. But one thing is, for example, if they have a witness protection policy place and if they believe that witnesses, for example, or, or the legal team are under threat, then, you know, they can introduce witness protection for the duration of the case, um, which would mean that the, the case would be held behind closed doors. The individuals would, be, would have security to help protect them. But I mean, that would be the best case scenario. Um, and that would all cost quite considerable amounts of money, which not many of these countries don't have, regardless of whether they have a witness protection policy in place. I think in terms 
what we've seen happening, for example, in countries like Zambia, where people have been arrested and have been charged. You have NGOs who help support, get the witnesses to and from the court, who monitor the court cases. And again, the challenge, certainly in many parts of Africa, is that the cases get kicked down the road all the time. You know, there is a tendency, whether it's deliberate or not, for cases to just go on and on and on with a sort of a perception, perhaps, that eventually everyone will lose interest in them and then they'll just die a slow, silent death. And, and that, is, that is one thing that we try to sort of mitigate because we keep an eye on these cases. There's a good case in Malawi where there's a, a Chinese syndicate, you know, going through the legal process and that's been going on for years. And again, keeping eyes and ears on the case, international eyes and ears on the case and ensuring that the government is aware that they're being watched helps to ensure that these cases actually go through the system and that the individuals receive the justice that they deserve. Definitely. And those are responses that need to be addressed according to particular cases. But looking back to the broader issue that enabled these assassinations to happen in the first place, let's look at the ivory trade, for example. Some governments have attempted to control ivory trade by outlawing hunting or allowing hunting throughout the purchase of a license and, and so on. What do you think about these attempts to control hunting and also to control poaching as means to protect people? My personal view is that hunting is a totally separate issue from, from this. Countries have policies in place which either support or ban professional trophy hunting, which is seen as a business and is should be registered and restricted and regulated by the government in question. So Tanzania allows hunting, South Africa allows hunting, many, many countries allow hunting, but that is a very separate thing from tackling the poaching and the illegal trade that takes place. In terms of tackling the illegal trade, I think, first of all, there is no silver bullet and different jurisdictions will have different challenges that they have to take into consideration. But at the end of the day, the only thing that works is a holistic joined up approach that brings people who are engaged in protecting the resources on the ground to the policing, to the judiciary and to the court system at the end of the, at the, end of the chain. You know, there are many different organizations looking at different elements of the, of the illegal trade chain. And so, for example, EIA tends to focus its efforts largely on the, the, the space between having, you know, having poached or killed or, or sourced your wildlife product to getting it to the consumer end. So it's that space where you have, you know, the transporter, the, the logistician, the corrupt customs official. So we have information that is valuable to people who both operate on the ground and people who are operating in a consumer country. At the consuming end, 
the authorities there, once they seize goods, they need to adopt an intelligence-led approach. The seizure is only part of the enforcement effort. It's not a success. The success is tracking back and finding out who was responsible and getting that person and arresting them and prosecuting them. You know, if you look at the number of prosecutions in countries where there have been large seizures, they're very limited. This is something that we've been looking at as an organization. Um, and we're hoping to produce a report sometime this spring that focuses on a couple of key countries looking at the prosecution levels or lack of. So for us, the key thing is collaboration and cooperation and sharing information. And no country, no agency, no individual can tackle the problem on their own. It can only be addressed properly if it's done as a collective. That's a very powerful message. Thank you for that, Mary. And finally, what role has the pandemic played in the lives of wildlife conservationists who are trying to save this endangered species? Has COVID-19 dispersed illicit criminal groups? I wish I could say yes, but unfortunately, based on, on the work that we, we've been doing over the last couple of years, and we actually produced a report at the end of last year called Out of Africa, which focused on the Western Central region and its role in illicit wildlife trade. You know, the world has adapted to working from home. Well, so have the criminal networks. We are still seeing large volumes of, of seizures being made. Goods are still being moved. I think probably in terms of aviation transport, that probably dropped during COVID because there were no, there were no, you know, there were no flights. People were not traveling by air, but shipping continued. And although there may have been more challenges for the criminals on the ground in getting their goods containerized and shipped out, they were, they, they were still doing it. And they also adapted in, in the way that they were selling their products. You know, there was a lot of, a lot of activity through social media and sort of remote engagement. Perhaps because it was a pandemic, maybe they let their guard down a little bit and divulged more information than they would normally do if they were engaging on a face-to-face -face basis. But from our experience, they, there hasn't been a huge reduction based on the amount of product that is still in circulation and continues to be in circulation. That's it for this special edition of Faces of Assassination podcast. A big thank you to Mary Rice for taking the time to speak to us. If you would like to read the EIA's Out of Africa paper, it is available in the summary of this podcast. We have also created short podcasts in the life of Wayne Lotter, the wildlife conservationist discussed in this podcast, which is available on this podcast feed along with other episodes of Faces of Assassination. Please go to our website, assassination.globalinitiative.net, subscribe to our newsletter, and to this podcast series. Help us remember the death anniversaries using our hashtag assassinationwitness. You can also download the free ebook, which profiles 50 victims of assassination who have yet to receive justice. The best tribute you can pay to the courageous people who stood up to crime is to keep the memories alive and with our collective memory, shine a light into this darkness. 
This was Faces of Assassination Podcast. I'm Ana Paula Oliveira. Thanks for listening.